0: Well, if you have your Bibles, turn once again uh, to John chapter 10, the gospel of John chapter 10. And if you do not have a copy of God's word, there's one located in the back of the pew in front of you, and you're welcome to take and use that this morning and then take it home with you uh, as our gift to you so that you might have a copy uh, of this incredible book. Well, this morning we are going to wrap up uh, the analogy, uh, for the most part, where Jesus has been talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, comparing himself to the, uh, to the good shepherd and using the analogy of a shepherd and his sheep to convey truths uh, to them. Uh, this was a common teaching technique for Jesus. And the two truths that we have talked about, he's been trying to point out to these Pharisees to help them understand is that one, they were bad shepherds. They weren't caring for, they weren't loving the sheep of Israel. And his uh, prime example and illustration was how they had mistreated the man who had been born blind, but Jesus whom Jesus had miraculously healed. So point one was you guys are bad shepherds. You're mistreating the nation of Israel uh, and God's sheep. But secondly, he was trying to convince them and help them understand and believe that he was the Messiah, that he was God's son, and that if they were going to have a relationship with God, they were going to have to believe that truth and receive him as their savior. So these are the two things that Jesus is trying to underscore and uh, underline, underscore. He wanted them to know, all right? (laughs) See, I'm getting old. I'm losing it up here. He wanted them to grasp those two truths and respond to them. So in verse 15, he has said last week, he he ended by saying, I lay down my life. For the sheep. That was one of the identifying marks of a good shepherd. A good shepherd laid down his life. He got between danger and his flock of sheep to protect them. So he said, I lay down my life for the sheep. And then to again affirm the big picture of his life and his ministry and the work that Jesus came to do, he says in verse 16, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock one shepherd so as Jesus speaks this truth and this uh, the truth of this verse recognize that this is very exciting and it's actually very good news for us because when you look back at the history of salvation and how God had saved and brought people to himself you first recognize and we first see from Scripture that God's chosen people were the Israelites. And we also call them the Jewish people. They were God's favor. They were God's chosen people. God determined that he would reveal himself as the way of salvation. He would have a relationship with people through the Jewish people, through the nation of Israel. He gave them the law. He instituted circumcision as a sign of his covenant with them. The sacrifices that were offered on behalf of people. To make atonement for their sins came through the priest at the temple. God told them, I will be your God and you will be my people. So there was a, a special relationship. They were, if you will, the door by which people came to know God and to, and to serve Him all throughout the Old Testament. This is how God established and started salvation history. Now, don't misunderstand this as saying that that God didn't save people from other nations or tribes or tongues because God did. We see this even through the Old Testament that he saved people from different nations, from different races, from different lands. Because God's desire has always been that all people would come to him and be saved through him and have a relationship with him. That has always been God's desires that people would come to him to be his people. And before Jesus, atonement was through faith in the covenant, through the law, whether people were Jewish or not. Don't misunderstand also that people, well, they just offered the sacrifices, they were made right with God. No, it has always been about faith and about trusting God, regardless of the path we followed to be in right relationship with him. But here's what happened. This is the byproduct of God choosing the nation of Israel. There began to be within them a nationalistic pride, a a haughtiness within them, thinking that they were innately superior, whether it be morally or spiritually, to all other people. They're like, we are God's favored. We are God's chosen people. And therefore, if we are, then you are what? Not. Yeah, you're not. We're chosen, you're not. We're special, you're not. And so there began to be this dichotomy, this haughtiness among the people. And there were basically two categories of people. There were the Jewish people, God's favored, God loved, God's chosen in their eyes. And then what they called Gentiles, which were all other people. You know, they were were a whole separate category. So you were either one or the other. But here in verse 16, Jesus comes and says, I have other sheep, not of this fold. He's speaking to the Pharisees in the nation of Israel. And it's a clear indication that Jesus is going to continue God's plan and God's desire from the beginning. That people from all races, from all nations, from all tribes, all tongues would be able to come to him for salvation. Jesus is here extending the offer of salvation to the Gentiles saying they would be also a part of God's flock or God's family. Now, this isn't going to sit well with the Jews. They despised Gentiles. They thought they were above them. And you know what? Gentiles very often return the animosity toward them because of, of how they treated them uh, in return. And so it's kind of a two-way street here. But Jesus says that they will all be together, Jews and Gentiles, as part of one flock with one shepherd. And that he would be the shepherd. And you'll notice that Jesus said here in verse 16, I must... Bring them also. This wasn't an afterthought, just some kind of an add on uh, that Jesus would do. This was a fundamental, non negotiable part of his life and his work and his ministry that all peoples would have the opportunity to know God and have a relationship with him if they would simply listen to and follow Jesus' call, his invitation. To come to him and to follow him and be made right with God through his death on the cross of Calvary. And so as we think about this, we say, well, how did people get into the fold? You know, if they were Israelites and then they were, they were Gentiles who weren't a part of Israel, they didn't know about the law and all that. How would people get into this fold, into this one flock? Well, they would do what everyone needed to do that Jesus taught. They would need to hear And respond to the voice of the good shepherd that 's how they would come to be a part of god 's flock or god 's family. They would hear and respond to the voice of the Good Shepherd. I mentioned in week one we talked about how there would be several flocks of sheep in a pen that would stay overnight, and the shepherd would come the next morning and he would call out to his sheep or he would whistle or he would make whatever was his identifying noise, and his sheep, which recognized his tone and his uh, tenor and his voice, they would come out of this group pen and they would follow the shepherd. This is the picture that Jesus gives. That when he calls and makes available the offer of salvation and extends that to all people, that those who hear and respond to his voice and come follow him as the good shepherd will be part of his flock. They will be a part of God's family. And as we think about Jesus' life and his ministry, we see that this call was extended while Jesus was alive and while he ministered among people. And we see many people from different flocks, from different folds, coming and responding to Jesus for salvation. I want to kind of illustrate that for us this morning because this is kind of the—I want to drive this point home because it's so important that we understand Jesus' call— to all people because we as extensions of Jesus, as believers and followers, we are to follow his call and his example to reach all people with the gospel message, with the good news of Jesus Christ. So I'm I'm gonna need a couple of volunteers to help me out here a little bit. Ross, I see you over here. Why don't you come up here for a second? I wanna borrow you for a moment. People are going, sliding down their seats. Oh no, he's gonna call me in a minute. It's pretty simple. Ross, we're talking about Pharisees here, uh, that Jesus is speaking to them. And so I'm going to have you be uh, Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. If you remember back in John chapter 3, we talked about that. Uh, He was a Pharisee who came to Jesus by night, who wound up placing his faith and trust in him. And so I'm going to have you take this book. This is a big book, the biggest book I could find in my library. I'm going to have you hold this. Don't hurt your back. You're going to hold this, and you're going to represent Nicodemus. Because here's the thing about a Pharisee. They were educated. They were theologically trained. They were very knowledgeable. uh, And not everybody had the access to be able to do this that a Pharisee had. So you were kind of an elite member of society, of this religious sect. So you were the high end of people who came to follow Jesus. So come on up here. I want to put you in our sheep pen. We've been using the sheep pen this month. So come on in here, Mr. Sheep. All right, so we got Nicodemus in here. He, he's the high end of people who came to follow Jesus. Now I need Kim Kelly. She just went, oh no. Kim, come on down here. I got something special for you. You're gonna love this. I got the bling going on for you this morning, Kim. Woo, all right. Here, why don't you take and put the, oh, you put those on. I'll pick this one up here. Yeah, put them all on there. You're going to represent the woman caught in adultery. <laughs> See, that's why I didn't say anything until she got down here. So put those on. <laughs> and you're going to take this one. You're going to twirl it. Oh, but don't put anybody's eye out. All right. So Yes, you're going to be in the sheep pen. Because, yeah, she's got it. There we go. The, the, the woman caught in adultery here whom Jesus came and said, you know, you, uh, you know, go and sin no more. So we're going to have you come up to the sheep pen as well. So now we've got ends of the spectrum. We've got Nicodemus, the, uh, the trained religious uh, leader, of the Pharisee here. Then we've got Kim, the, the woman who's caught in adultery, who came and followed. And honestly, I'm going to tell you, the whole beads thing, I don't know. I went and talked to Pastor Jeff, our creative mind, this week and said, hey, I'm doing this little thing. What can I use to represent? He said, put beads. And I was like, okay, I don't know why, but she's got beads, all right? As a side note, how many of you, you, you have children, you've got Pastor Jeff's music CD where he sings this song. You know any of you have that? Any of your kids like ask for that all the stinking time? I've got five of my sermons in our car and his CD in there. And all they want to hear is Pastor Jeff singing, not their dad preaching. I just don't get it. I, I don't know what Lord fill me, fill me up like a big gulp has to do with anything at all in the world. But, but they, they, they love it and listen to it all the time. So we've got the, the ends here. Right, I'm going to need like a, a group representation. So I'm going to have you three, four, five, you three, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You guys stand up for me right here. All right, you all are the 10 lepers. You may remember the story that that Jesus came. (laughs) Jesus came and he healed 10 lepers. And so they, you know, went bounding off and they were all excited that they had their miracle. But of the 10 lepers, Michelle, come here. We're gonna let you come. All right, only one... And the leper that came back was a Samaritan. Now, they got the Jews and the Gentiles. Samaritans were a whole other class of people. And they may have even ranked below the Gentiles. Because what happened was they were Jews who intermarried with Gentiles and had children by that. And so the Jews considered them half-breeds. And they detested the Samaritans, maybe even more than just a a full-blooded Gentile. So you are a Samaritan leper that Jesus healed, and then she came back and actually thanked Jesus for the miracle. So you other nine ingrates, you can all sit down. Didn't your parents teach you to thank somebody when they gave you a miracle? I mean, my goodness, you know, that's just amazing. So Michelle, you're gonna get to carry the first aid kit. All right, and then you come on up. We'll have you join in the pen here as well. Now, I'm not sure if we're kind of ranking these. You got Nicodemus. He's the high end. I, I don't know how these two would fit. If, if, like, you're the bottom of the social ladder or if it's you. But, but, I mean, you see the spectrum here of people that came and followed Jesus as they heard his call. I am the Messiah. I've come. And, and these are my teachings. They followed, placed their faith in him. Uh, let's see. Adam, why don't you slip on out and come on down here? I'll have you... We're going to give Adam this right here because it so fits his temperament, his personality. Some of you are chuckling. You're going to get the calculator. You are Matthew, the tax collector. All right. And Matthew, as the tax collector, he was a Jew that people didn't like because the tax collectors were in cohorts with the Romans. See, tax collectors collected the Roman money, all right? But in order to fund their own lifestyle, they would also tack on fees uh, and penalties to persons. So you were basically the extortionist. With that, so yeah, that, that that's fitting. So yeah, people didn't care too much for you as a tax collector either. Yet you get to come and be one of Jesus' disciples. How awesome is that? So so come join the sheep up here in the sheep pen. Looking around, look at her. Oh, Eric Dunkham just left, didn't he? I yeah, I, I see him. I see him slip out. Hey Jeff, why don't you come, with Jeff McMillan? You come down here for a second, brother. We'll have Jeff. He gets a very simple one. He's gonna get my fishing pole here. He's going to be uh, Peter, one of the disciples, who was a fisherman by trade. So you have just a average, you know, normal worker who came to follow Jesus. So go join the sheep in the sheep pen. Alan Kirks, I, I got you for this one. You come on up here. You, you totally fit this bill. Don't hurt anybody with this, all right? I'm going to give you the sword. You're going to be the centurion that came to Jesus and had a servant who was sick and asked Jesus to heal him, had faith in Christ, and Jesus healed him with just a word. Uh, And so you are a Roman, ooh, a Gentile. And the crowd gasped. Yes, you're you're a Roman Gentile who comes to follow Jesus. (laughs) So you get in the kingdom as well. So come on up here. Now, you're not the only Roman. You're not the only centurion. You're not the only Gentile that came to follow Jesus. And what you teach us is that God calls all people, Jesus called all people to himself in his ministry to come follow him. So you see this motley crew of persons up here. All these different uh, socioeconomic levels, these different positions in life, all came and responded to Jesus' call for them to place their faith and their trust in him. What's the lesson in this? It's that the church of Jesus Christ, we as God's people are to take this same message to all people. We are to receive all people. I mean, we, look at, we would compare this to church and say, which one of these looks like a church person? Thinking about their professions, what they came from. Really, only Nicodemus is the ones that people would say, he looks like a church guy. The rest of these don't fit the bill. Yet, nonetheless, Jesus calls all people to come and follow him. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't go to get, a, get a good sheep bleed out of you guys, all right? So, I'm going to—Jesus said, come follow me, and the sheep said? Hey. Nice, nice. Give him a hand. Give him a hand. You guys can just put that stuff in the basket there. I'll get that, sir. Thank you. Good work. Good work, sheep. So, you see that diversity in people that come— and follow Jesus. Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Again, the application of this is that as a body of believers, we must, just as Jesus said he must bring them in, so we must be a place that welcome and includes and receives all people, regardless of what kind of pen they may come from, whether it's race or a socioeconomic status, whether it's a a, a position of, uh, of influence or not of influence. We are to be a place that receives all people and all persons. And one of my prayers regularly for this church is that we will be a body that is identified in that way, that people will say that is a place of love, and of of acceptance and inclusion those are people just like me who love Jesus and because of the difference he's made in in their lives are seeking to make a difference in the lives of others and I think I've spoken of this before but just this word picture for us to constantly keep in the front of our minds the church isn't a luxury liner for believers It's not a museum of saints, of people who have it all together. And we're nice portraits. say, look, here's how things work out and it's nice and neat and it's beautiful and it's pretty in my life. We're not a luxury liner for believers. It's not a museum of saints who have it all together. The church, if we're thinking of a picture, of a metaphor to describe who we are, this is a hospital for sinners. And it's a hospital that's on the front lines of people who are hurting and people who are struggling. People who need a savior people who need to hear and and experience the love and the mercy and the compassion of Jesus Christ. And I say this regularly to us as a body because you've got to understand this. I can't do this on my own. I'm not able to connect and see and welcome and make every person that, that visits and sets foot in this church week in and week out feel welcome and a part of this body. It is a task that we must do collectively, all of us working together. It is our responsibility. And we do that first and foremost. This is, I think, the biggest hurdle for us is looking past a person's exterior. We must see people as Jesus sees them, people who are in need of a Savior. I mean, you saw these different persons. Nobody in that culture, the religious elite in in that culture, in that society didn't care a hoot for any of those people other than maybe Nicodemus. Yet Jesus came and he called to them, a prostitute, a leper, a tax collector, a fisherman, uh, you know, a, a Roman soldier, and he called them to come and follow him as the good shepherd. And we must follow that example in our lives as well. Well, Jesus continues on in verse 17. He says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Now, don't hear this as saying that God loves Jesus or that God loves us conditionally as in, well, because I'm obedient and because I do this, then God loves me. Because actually the, the reverse is what Jesus is saying here. You'll notice that the first thing Jesus speaks of is God's love. He's basically saying, because God Loves me, and I know and I experience that love of God. Therefore, I am willing and I I willingly lay down my life for these sheep. The sheep of Israel, but the sheep from these other pens. God's love is the motivator. It's the starting point uh, in moving us to obedience with God. And I love how John, Maxwell, or John MacArthur summarized this idea. He said, two attitudes define the relationship of Jesus and his heavenly father. Love and obedience. The two are inseparably linked since it's impossible to love God without obeying him. And we see this fleshed out in Jesus' life, that God loved him, and there was a love relationship between the two, and that out of that love relationship they had, Jesus obeyed his heavenly Father. And here's the thing, Jesus calls us to that as well, that as we experience and we know personally, experientially, the love of God, we are motivated and we are moved to obey and to go and to serve and do those things that God calls us to do. But love is the motivator. Love is a starting point. Because here's the thing. If we wait until we get the obedience part down, we're never going to make it. Because we can't obey in our own strength. We won't obey in our own strength. But it's the love of God that he has lavished and poured out upon us that moves us to obey and to serve him in our lives and in our actions. Well, Jesus then kind of wraps up by saying uh, what he was going to do in order, in a way to prove, so to speak, or demonstrate that he was God's son, that he was God's Messiah, because he was going to do something that no one else had ever done. Uh, He says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. In verse 18, he says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I talked last week about how this idea of laying it down and this phrase that John uses means to voluntarily, willingly give up one's life for the sake of another. It, it didn't apply to martyrdom when someone was, was arrested and executed because of their faith. It didn't apply to a criminal being executed for a crime that had taken place. Although Jesus death from a human viewpoint looked like a criminal being executed for some crime. But Jesus committed no crime. So Jesus said that he, he would lay down his life and take it up again. And then he clearly identifies that he is the one doing this in verse 18 saying, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. So he clearly states that he would lay down his life and he would take his life up again, meaning he would resurrect himself from the dead. And some people look at this and they argue that this contradicts other parts of Scripture, that this is a contradiction in the Bible because there are other verses, and I listed those that say that God raised Jesus from the dead. So here Jesus says he would raise himself from the dead. But in other places, the Bible says that God raised Jesus from the dead. And so they say, well, there's a contradiction. It's got two different people that raised Jesus from the dead. And you know how to respond when somebody says that, don't you? And your point is, what are you trying to say with this? Because their thought that the religious leaders here are going to try and take Jesus to task on is to say, Jesus claiming to raise himself from the dead is making a claim to be equal on the same level as God. Because he would be demonstrating then that he has the power to give life or to take life. So he's putting himself on the same plane as God. So the question we ask then is, well, well, did Jesus ever claim to be God? Look at verse 30, and we'll get to this verse here next week. But in verse 30, Jesus very clearly says to them, I and the Father are one. And he doesn't mean, you know, one as in we're together, we're a unit. You know, it's kind of, we're different persons, but together. He means, the word one here describes the same essence, the same character, the same nature. Jesus is saying, I am God And the Pharisees try to kill him because of what he says when he makes this claim right here. Uh, So saying God raised Jesus from the dead and then Jesus saying he would raise himself from the dead was the same thing. Because Jesus was both. The Trinity teaches that there was God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit who are separate yet one entity. They are equal. They are the same. So if somebody says, well, did God raise Jesus from the dead or did Jesus raise himself from the dead? You say, Yes. Yes, he did. That they are one and the same. It'd be like you talking to my son, talking to Caleb and Caleb saying, man, my dad took me to a UK basketball game and it was awesome because they won because that's like all they do this year. They're, They're awesome. And so we went to this UK basketball game and then you say to Caleb and say, wow, that's cool, Caleb. You know, I heard Pastor Curtis say he was taking his son to the basketball game. Did you see Pastor Curtis there? Caleb is my mild-mannered, polite child. And he would look at you and smile and nod and go on. And in his mind, he's thinking, you doofus? It's the same person. My dad is Pastor Curtis. Now, Anna's a little more free-flowing. She might look at you and call you a doofus and say, that is my dad, okay? It's one and the same. There's no distinction in that, even though you're referencing two different places. So there's no contradiction in Scripture here because Jesus and God are one and the same. Now, let's look at verse 19. I told you that Jesus would often use these analogies to, to the religious leaders or to, just to the crowds in general. And then people, they, they just didn't get it. They kind of missed the point. So, we're like, did they finally get it? Did John 10, the lights came on, the curtain w- was open, and they're like, ah, we get it. You're God's son. You're the Messiah. We're going to believe and follow you now. Verse 19 tells us. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is all swirling. Remember, this entire situation is set up over the fact that Jesus healed a man who had been born blind from birth on the Sabbath. And we see the same thing happen with that miracle that happened with all the miracles, with all of Jesus' teaching in his entire ministry. And that's this. Jesus separates people. He separated people in his life and his ministry and his teachings and his works separated people. It separated them into those who believe or did believe and those who don't or didn't believe. Two categories, two groups of people. Earlier in this chapter, we talked about Jesus being the door. You may remember a couple of weeks ago, I kind of laid down here to demonstrate that that a good shepherd, when he had his sheep out in a distant pen, would lay across and sleep in the doorway to keep the sheep in and to keep the the wild animals out, or if there were other sheep wandering around to keep them out, Jesus said, I am the door. This idea of a door serves a dual purpose of what happens here in, in verses 19 and 20, that Jesus separates and divides people. I mean, just think about it. A door, it keeps some things in, some things out. You know, your kids go to your room, they want to be alone. They go in, they close the door. So it is a separator. It is a divider. We see this in Jesus' ministry that people believed or they didn't believe. There is no neutral position. It's impossible to be neutral about Jesus. Either you believe or you don't believe. And it'll never cease to amaze me what people will do to try and avoid making a decision about Jesus. The Pharisees here, what they do, they call him a lunatic. You see, the ancients believed that any in, in individual who had what we would term a psychological disorder, they thought they were demon-possessed. And like, this guy has a demon. He's talking out of his mind. He is claiming to be God. And we know that God isn't a person, so he can't be God. This guy, he's not right. Why would you listen and follow him? Which brings us back to something I've said over and over again, and you've got to get this in your brains, that if they can't refute your doctrine, people will malign your character. And that's what they try to do. They try to assassinate Jesus' character by saying he's not right. There's something not uh, right in this man's mind that he would make this claim to be God. I mean, it would kind of be like people today, you know, claiming to be a Napoleon or an Abraham Lincoln or, or one of the you know, many celebrity person and they dress like the person and they talk like the person and, and trying to really convince someone i am abraham lincoln i am napoleon we kind of look at him we smile and we nod and go yeah yeah right okay yeah but we just you know you know that they're not that person so that's what they're trying to get people to think about jesus the only problem with this approach with this tactic is what the facts if someone today claimed to be God and you wanted to kind of engage them and maybe try and give them some rational thought, you would probably say to that person, well, prove it. You say that you're God. Do something that God would be able to do. Demonstrate this claim that you are God because you want them to realize you're not God. You can't do these things. They wouldn't have a resume to back up their claim to be God. But you know what? Jesus did. Jesus did. He did have the resume let's just think about we've been for about a year and a half in the gospel of John think about what we have seen in John's gospel only a dove descended from heaven landed on him and a voice from heaven said this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased listen to him when he was baptized by John Jesus knew when Nathaniel came to him to become one of his disciples. He told him where he had been, what he had been doing when Philip came and said, come and follow Jesus. We believe he's the Messiah. Jesus had that insight and that knowledge even though Jesus wasn't there. Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. He knew the Samaritan woman's marital history even though he didn't know her and didn't live in the village. Jesus healed an official's son by just speaking the word over 20 miles away from where this young man lived. He healed a man who had been an invalid for over 38 years. He fed 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. He walked on water and then standing in their midst, in the context of all this taking place, is a man who had been born blind from birth that Jesus miraculously healed. All these things have taken place in John's gospel. That's not to include what we read about in the other gospels, nor does it include the the miracles and signs and wonders that would take place after John chapter 10. And basically Jesus says, and if you don't believe all of those, the coup de grace is going to be, I'm going to die. I'm going to allow myself to be killed remember Jesus told Pilate you would have no authority over me if it were not given you from heaven I'm going to allow myself to be killed and then I will raise myself from the dead three days later so if you don't believe all the other stuff at least believe that and they didn't they refused their hearts were hard and calloused and they rejected these signs and these wonders You you say you've heard the phrase "the proof's in the pudding." Well, if the proof was in the pudding, Jesus had it; it was there for all to see. Yet they still refuse to believe. It's because the issue is this: it's it never was, it never is about proof. The issue here is always an issue of faith. Will we place our faith, our trust, our belief in Jesus? Will we receive him as Savior? And then will we step out in faith and will we follow him? I titled the sermon this morning, there's an APB out on you. That's a police term for all points bulletin, meaning all uh, officers, all uh, persons on duty uh, and even off duty. Keep your eyes open for an individual, for a vehicle, for whatever. There's There's a manhunt going on and everybody needs to be looking, paying attention for this individual. God is looking for his sheep. He is calling, and he's calling us to go and to share the good news so that those sheep can respond and will respond and come to him to be a part of one flock under one shepherd. So if you're here today and you've never given your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, our pastors are available, and we would love to introduce you to the good shepherd. But you see, the good shepherd teaches us and tells us that our life is about love and obedience— That we're to love God, and we're to love other people, and we're to obey God. And we obey God by going and telling other people and inviting them to come and follow the good shepherd. But you see, we do that only as our lives are fully surrendered to him. Is your life surrendered to him? Are you obeying and stepping out in obedience? Are you pursuing this love relationship with God that Jesus has called you to? People go to great lengths to run away from God's call. I mean, the, these, these Pharisees here, they, they said Jesus was demon-possessed. They called him a lunatic. Said he was insane to avoid responding to Jesus' call. Now, you may not be that extreme in your disobedience, you may be using more of the excuse strategy. Well, I can't follow God, and I can't do this because of this, and, and God wouldn't want me to do this because of this, and I don't have that gift, or I don't have this time. Or I don't, and so you're given all these excuses. But here's the thing. Understand this. It's an excuse. Just, just call it, acknowledge for, for what it is. It's an excuse for you to not do, to not be obedient and faithful to what God has called you to. And this morning, I ask you, set aside those excuses, those reasons, because they don't hold water. Because Jesus says, it's never been about what you can do. It's about what I can do in you. And it's about what I will do through you if you will listen and believe and receive and respond and then follow my call. The Good Shepherd is calling Will you respond? Will you obey?